Mason joins me for this episode. He has a Bachelor of Arts in Christian Ministry from Urshan College. Graduated class of 2020. Summa cum laude. Probably had a mask on his face too when he graduated. Yes. <laughs> I did. And he is, Caleb's pursuing his master's in theological studies from Urshan Graduate School of Theology. He serves as the student discipleship pastor of Vindicated Student Ministries at the Life Church of Kansas City. He's also a drummer, guitar and bass player, phenomenal teacher and preacher of the Word of God. And if you haven't figured it out already, he is my younger brother. Caleb, how you doing, man? Doing good. Man, thanks for joining me for this. This is actually uh, the only second in-person guest appearance I've ever had. The first one was in 2020. With Brother Nathan Santo Mary, and it was just a laptop pulling sound out of the air with the microphone while we're eating tacos. Man, I wish, <laughs> wish we would have had the tacos. I should have got tacos, but we got coffee. We got coffee. Extra, extra dark. Well, I, I, I made a mistake. I should have brewed a, I put a full amount of coffee grounds in for a full pot, but didn't adjust the, the little ninja knob there for a full one, just did a half one. Sorry. We may have to run it through twice. It's all right. If I run it through twice, would that be a problem? I'm not sure. I need, I'm not sure. I don't think it'd be a problem. That'd probably be a, a little experiment for us uh, to check out. But how's, uh, how's school going, man? Man, it's um, online school. I know there's probably a lot, a lot of the listeners out there that do online school and can um, sympathize, but it's just, it's different. Um, Cause I mean, I was only used to in-person school from, you know, high school and undergrad. Now I live back home and I do, um, Urshan graduate school of theology distance. So it's a little bit different, um, with the zoom class stuff though, it makes it really nice. Um, cause you can have different, um, like your teacher will teach and then you have a class and you can have like a discussion about it just like you would in a classroom setting. So that's nice. Um, it's a lot of reading and writing. If you don't like reading and writing, I don't recommend um, doing a master's degree in theology. That's just about what it is. But I love it. I love it. I love reading. Writing's tough, um, but I, I enjoy. I enjoy it. Nice. Would you say that Bible college, even um, even pursuing a master's degree, a doctorate? essentially continuing your education is meant to challenge you yeah that's that's the point of it i think um it's it's to you know affirm what you already know and believe and to strengthen it with introducing other things that only add value to your belief system i think Mm -hmm. Um, it's definitely challenging on a intellectual um you know level of thinking about different things and different concepts about your faith that maybe you haven't thought about before. Um, and just, I mean, it's a challenge at school, you know, Bible college is not, it's not just youth camp, you know, you don't just go to church and hang out all day. Um, there's work and a lot, a lot of work, but I definitely, it's meant to challenge. Yeah. And that was something I, I didn't, whenever I, I, I graduated in 05 from uh, gateway Bible college, may it rest in peace. <laughs> Rip. But if there was no gateway, there may have not been an Urshan college. You're rocking a nice Urshan hoodie there, by the way. I know, way. yeah. I wanted to. It's my, <laughs> my most comfortable hoodie. 
or some calories. You know, this coffee ain't bad. It ain't bad. It ain't bad. It, it ain't bad at all. It ain't too good, but it ain't too bad. <laughs> it is a little strong. That's how I drink it. But uh, I should have brought some Mountain Dew for you. Mm. I haven't had that in a long time. That's that's old gamer fuel. Yeah. Podcaster fuel is coffee. <laughs> Only Baja Blast Mountain Dew. Mmm. Maybe we will go get some tacos mm. after this and some Baja Blast. Me too. <laughs> yeah. But uh, after, I don't know, about a month at Gate... Well, for the first month, it was a youth camp for me, man. Mm. It, it was a, a great place for me to be away from home, a safe place, but to feel like an individual. And I didn't get in any trouble, but I didn't sleep. <laughs> and and I uh, was having a little bit too much fun. But something I learned at Bible college, it's not church. In uh, graduate school, it's not church. And your professors are not your pastors. Uh, you have a campus pastor, obviously, but even he or she is not a like a pastor that you have at a local church. It's um, uh, college context. Mm-hmm. And so I think, and I, I really had to change my way of thinking whenever I heard a, a college professor talk. They weren't trying to pastor me. Um, yes, teach me, but more so prepare me to grow me. And yes, challenge me, which I did not like. <laughs> yeah. That's um, one of the very first classes you take at Urshan is. Um, introduction to Pentecostal theology and the whole basis of the class is I mean you're going through the basic doctrines of you know the apostolic church movement what we believe and all that but he professor teaches you how to defend your faith is a lot of it he teaches you um, the information but he's also empowering you and showing you what's going to happen you know you're going to encounter these questions you're going to have times when you're asked hard things. And so you need to be prepared for that, especially because, I mean, most of the kids are 18 years old. You know, maybe they haven't really experienced um, life outside of a church context, public school, maybe some homeschooled. You know, they've never been challenged with these questions. And it's, it needs, you need to be prepared, you know, because it's just the world, it just, it comes naturally. You know, you'll be challenged, your faith will be challenged. And you need to have that firm foundation. And that from rooting when that comes or else you're going to, it's just not going to last. Do you think a lot of people show up to Bible college and they're not even able to articulate the gospel with any coherence? Yes. (laughs) I think that's, that's something that I've just noticed. A lot of times we take our belief system for granted. Um, just cause I mean, we grew up with it. You know, I, I grew up with my belief system. I never really, um, learned to appreciate it until I got to Urshan. And I started learning the ins and outs in an academic setting of what I believed. Um, and it's true, yeah. And it's, it's funny. Um, I was the, um, my senior year, I was able to be a, a, a teacher's assistant for the freshman class. And it was just um, interesting for me to see these, you know, because that was me three years before. They're, they're experiencing some topics for the very first time. And I'm like, man, it's just, it's just so fun. Because right. they've never thought about some of this stuff before. Yeah, I remember in class we had something. Would you say the first one is uh, apostolic theology or Pentecostal theology? Yeah. I, I, they didn't call it that. I can't remember what they called it, but I remember 
having uh, the teacher was asking us to define certain words, and my word was propitiation. <laughs> Good luck. Oh man. And and you know, it was it wasn't embarrassing because there was a lot of words that were being thrown at us, and we were eighteen and nineteen years old. And that's not a word, first of all, that you hear preached at all. That's a, it is a Bible word. It, it's definitely in the King James. I'm not sure if New King James, ESV, all those other ones use it. But it it got to me, and I just, and I humbly said, I'm not sure. Never heard that word. It, I've never even preached that word. <laughs> but I later found out what it means, and it's, I guess, in simple terms it essentially means something that takes takes the place of uh, the blood of Christ took the place uh we should have been on that cross he became the propitiation for our sins he took the place of it isn't that how it's defined i think so. it's it's some kind of <laughs> some kind of old testament um, i know it it has something to do with the atonement theology and all that yeah 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 propitiation yeah that's a word you just don't hear a lot but I think, let me see, what, is it, what does it mean? I'm going to look it up. Yeah, it means atonement. Atonement that would appease a god, a spirit or person. Yeah. Wow, I still remember what it means, and yeah. I haven't thought about it <laughs> since like 2001, 20 years ago. <laughs> it's funny you say um, they don't even know the gospel. Um, I... Um, I remember, and, I when, at, and when you say they, that is, includes me. Yeah, I really could not articulate the gospel with yeah. much coherence. Yeah, that's why I said you just you just take it for granted. I I remember um, I was we were in um, our intro to preaching class. Um, that was fun. We, we would just um, our teacher would teach for the whole semester, and then the last couple of class periods we would um, um, each you would have to develop a sermon and preach it into front of the class. Right. Um, and it was, you know, you just had to try to keep kids awake because it was an afternoon class at one thirty. They just eaten lunch. You know, everybody's asleep or on their phone, you know, while you're preaching. Cause a lot of times it's kids first sermons ever, you know? And so you hear a lot of the same things. And, um, but, uh, one of mine was, uh, I preached on like the message of the gospel. I'd, I just studied it out. I never really thought about it before, you know, death, burial, resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, um, it's just enlightening. It's, it's amazing. Power of the gospel, especially apostolic church. And um, we, of course, know the application of the gospel, Acts 2.38, repentance, baptism, Holy Spirit mirrors the, the cross and Calvary. So it was just amazing to me. I never, um, I, knew, I knew all that, you know, just in, a, in some sense, but I've never really put it all together. And, articulated it and let it like just change me you know yeah and reading and writing will do that for you and then having a professor do they still use that word yeah professor prof a lot of them say professor well prof prof is not i've never heard that in bible college but i know other secular universities will say prof just for short but is professor like a an actual credential or is it just like a title uh as a gesture of endearment. I don't know. I, when I think of professor, I think of like the old, like scholastic dudes that would wear like the long robes with the, with the, right. fun, with the funny hats. I don't know. 
I don't know where that came from. I kind of like it, actually. I like Professor. Professor. Because it's just, it's, you know, it's not, yeah. It separates from, like, brother and sister. Yeah. And I always liked Professor. I called, I always said Professor Norse or Dr. Norse. Doctor, yeah. You know, Professor, uh, one of my favorite was, uh, he's passed away now. With, he's uh, in heaven now, Professor Crownover. Mm. Yeah, he was <laughs> he was something at Gateway. Mm. You know, Professor Brickle and you know, all all of them over there. But uh yeah, it's academia is um I think you gotta be called to wanna be it and called to wanna do it. And you're definitely into that and pursuing that. I've thought about thinking about maybe possibly <laughs> thinking about perhaps yeah. daydreaming. Thinking about thinking about <laughs> going Back to school and hearing you talk about it actually makes me really heavily want to consider it because education is powerful. It is. It really is. I, I never really felt, um, well, I felt, I felt, I actually did not used to, I did feel called to it. My sophomore year, um, I took a class on the Pauline epistles, which is, um, just the writings of Paul. And, um, my professor, it was, it was a class, it was a smaller class, it was about um, 11, 12 of us guys, it was all guys, and um, we were all like, we were all kind of friends in the class, and we would, um, it was like a conference, conference room style class, we'd go and sit in this conference room, and um, professor, he would just, it was Professor Cressman, um, he would pick out a topic from the Epistles of Paul, and he would just kind of open up the floor for discussion, and we would um, just throw on ideas. You know, what what is Paul talking about here? I remember he started out one class. Um, I think the beginning of Galatians, Paul. You know, he's really upset about his oh foolish Galatians who has uh, bewitched you. You mm-hmm. know, KJV. He's really mad. And so uh, Professor Cressman started out the class. He like was pacing back and forth in the class, like oh foolish Galatians. You know, he was trying to tell us how you know paul was like talking speaking to them because it was you know he's he came down hard on them you know because what they were what they were doing in that class i remember he wrote um he had us write a comp we had to pick one epistle of paul to study for the whole semester and so i picked second timothy and he had us write a um a shorter um just commentary over the uh, just different verses that you wanted to over the epistle and I remember just loving that. Like I opened up a commentary of, and just different um, scholars just saying their thoughts and connecting things throughout the whole entire New Testament and Old Testament. It just, I'd never experienced that before. Just scripture just came alive to me. Um, I remember one class, he just, he had, um, he was talking about how this, uh, the original um, New Testament epistles were, they weren't, uh, they were meant to be heard, not read originally Mm -hmm. you know because they would have they didn't have books they just had one copy each church had one copy probably of one of paul's epistles and they would um circulate and right they'd have one epistle and they would just read it aloud to the congregation i remember one class here he just um had to sit down and listen to the whole letter of philemon we just sat there and listened to it and it was just so enriching um i never just sat down and just listened to a whole you know book of the Bible. Philemon's short, but just a whole book of the Bible. Um, and from then on, I knew that I wanted to get my master's in theological studies. 
Um, I just knew it. I knew God was leading me that way. Um, it's just kind of how my brain works. Um, I just, I like thinking about things. Um, and it's just been a blessing in my life. It's truly amazing. It's not everything, but it's, it's a blessing. Well, I think it's important because it's actually a, an, the academic presentation. Now, you know, when you preach a revival or pastor, whatever, you don't really so much want to be the whole church professor. No. You know, even some of those professors like Dr. Norris that's come over to our church, he doesn't really act like a professor when he guest speaks at our church. He acts like a teacher, preacher, guest speaker, whatever you want to call it. But it used to be kind of like if you were smart, you couldn't preach. <laughs> wow, really? Well, that's just kind of the, the way of thinking it used to be. You know, if you were a guy slightly overweight and acted like a dingbat you were just so loved that was just the personality but now nowadays i don't know the the culture <laughs> i guess has uh kind of changed because i think uh people it, it probably because people really wanted to be entertained mm. you know and they they wanted the organ going while you were talking it's probably before a lot of the entertainment and like church was our inter entertainment before we even had yeah. any, that's just, we wanted to be entertained. We started watching TV and <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm kind of serious, but kidding <laughs> anyway. But I just think nowadays there's more of a connection with somebody who has something to say and can bring out deep interpretation but also profound application of the Word of God. Yeah. And that's well, something that Bible college did for me. It taught me how to preach the Bible for what it says and not allegorize everything. You know, back in the old days, everybody was preaching what they thought, why David picked up five smooth stones. Mm -hmm. What those five smooth stones what they represented. What they represented. The deeper spiritual meaning. It's J-E-S-U-S. -S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And then if you got a guy who was smart enough, he would talk about Goliath's five brothers. <laughs> oh, that would preach. <laughs> you know? Things like that. Wow. And, and I still have never heard actually a good message on why he picked out mm. uh, five smooth stones. I, I really don't know. Uh, maybe someday I'll figure that out, bring it back yeah. on here, we'll talk. But anyway, but you you didn't, um, you know, when Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw men. Well, our English Pentecostal language is lift up Jesus means let's all stand up and praise the Lord, <laughs> which I love doing that. But that really wasn't what Jesus was saying, right. you know, although that's true if you praise true, him. Yeah. But he was, that was crucifixion language. Yep. And you're going to learn things like that, not usually from the pulpit at your local church, but from uh, graduate school and academic perspective. Yeah. And so I think you're going to have the Holy Ghost move in a more deeper way when you speak in a way that the Bible was meant to be spoken yeah. and meant to be written. Yeah. I mean, and if you look at, um, I mean, just for example, Paul, he you know, he was brilliant. The things he would talk about. Um, I, I read somewhere, um, Paul is like listed as the second most influential man in all of history besides Jesus. Some, some kind of 
something. I so, believe it. Yeah. I mean, just his writings. But if you track his writings, um, he's only written, like his whole entire uh, corpus, what they call it, was just the what? Corpus. I don't know. Corpus. That's a, that's what that. Oh, that's a new one. Say, yeah. Like their collect, <laughs> their collection of. Dad says that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, the corpus. corpus. I'm gonna look that up. Corpus. Um, but it would only be about like 50 pages of like a regular book that we would read today. Like, no, oh. he was able to influence, you know, an incredible amount of, I mean, you know, the whole world with just 50 pages of, you know, his thoughts and ideas. But you know, the point is, is that he was very smart. He knew his stuff. Um, he was trained in all the, the philosophical schools of that day. He, he didn't ascribe to them, but he just knew about them. Um, he knew his Old Testament. A lot of, um, one of my teachers made the argument that um, because scrolls were so expensive in that day, when he quoted from the Old Testament, it was from his memory because he might not have had access to the synagogue to go and get the scrolls that they kept inside the synagogue. Mm. A lot of time he just had it memorized. He would just quote, just write down the scripture and his letters as he yeah. knew, as he knew it. He just he knew the Torah his whole life, you know. So once you have that aspect of you know you know the Bible, and you're able to internalize it and just and and preach and teach the meaning of the Bible, it's an application of it. You know, um, Brother Bernard he teaches the principle of scripture has one meaning but many applications. And yes. So that's what that's what they train us in. Um, seminaries and you were talking about the allegorizing of of different scriptures and um, it's it's so crucial especially as apostolics because we believe in apostolic authority you know and the apostles wrote is authoritative and so it's so important that we you know have that one scripture has one meaning but many different applications because we've all read a, a scripture and it has a meaning but it just applies so many different ways like like you're saying if i be lifted up you know yeah, one interpretation, but many applications. Yes. That's what I base all my podcasts, preaching, anything. Yeah, that's what it is. On. You interpret and apply. Yeah, they, you have to, like, we seek to determine the, the intent of the author. They call it authorial intent. And that's, you know, you need to have the bona fide truth of, of the scripture. But then, you know, because we know the scripture's alive, you know, the word of God is you know, it cuts like a sword into our hearts. It, it, it applies to different people in many different ways. And it's, it's amazing, really. Yes. Corpus, a collection of written texts, especially the entire works of a particular author. Mm. And Paul definitely had a corpus, that's for sure. Sounds like some kind of um, sea urchin, something you'd find in a coral reef. <laughs> yeah, it does, yeah. I, uh, some time ago, Bishop Bernard, he was talking about how the New Testament writers quoted the Old Testament, and obviously they used something that sounded a lot like the Masoretic text in places, but most commonly the Septuagint, right, Mm -hmm. that you'll see abbreviated in the Roman numerals LXX, Yeah, right? It means 70, I think. Yeah. Because it took 70 guys to translate But then they also gave, does he say their own rendition? I think he says they use three things. Masoretic, something similar to the Masoretic text, Septuagint, most commonly Septuagint, and their own rendition. Have you heard him say that? I haven't heard that, but I know what he's talking about. Yeah. Sometimes they would like, 
they would combine different verses together to to point to a truth that was revealed in the New Testament. You know, they're just different ways of interpreting the Old Testament text. I'll have to look. I can't. I think he said rendition. I don't want to. So maybe their own translation. Their own, yeah. Because there's some scholars where, like, you know, you know, a guy is a great scholar when he says, "If I'm reading like some kind of work," and he'll say, "This is my own translation," you know. And that's again to speak to the fact that they knew their their stuff so well that they felt that they had um, the knowledge to be able to uh, translate scripture as they understood it. Right. And I don't think there's any problem with that. You kind of use the two words translation and interpretation. Yeah. Okay, and, I, and you think about this. Tongues and interpretation. Is it tongues and interpretation or tongues and translation? Mm. I don't think usually when you hear a tongues in, in the interpretation, it's a word-for-word translation. It's right. more of the ideas. Yeah. And I'm not saying, I'm not advocating... Um, Man, it seems like a lot of those old academia words are coming back to me. Dynamic equivalence. <laughs> I've never heard of that one. It's a translation philosophy. I think it's uh, how they use for the NIV. Hmm. Word for word or thought for thought. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, heard that. I, for, I forget what dynamic equivalence is. That's word for word. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to Man, search it on my phone some Researching more. all this. But I think uh, the word of God should be in our mouth like that. And because a lot of Bible English can be very foreign, especially mm-hmm. to newer disciples. And you think about this, Paul, a Hebrew coming to Gentile people, not knowing anything about it, yeah. but able to proclaim Messiah through prophecy and through Old Testament examples, mm. and probably using very simple Greek yep. to, to talk to him. Yep. Yeah, I think that's a good thing. You know, I can't remember. Did you do Bible quizzing growing up? Uh, I did for one year, but I, I just, it wasn't for me. <laughs> I, I couldn't do it. I'm a terrible memorizer. Yeah. I am a expert familiarizer. Familiarizer. Though, when people ask me, how do you preach without notes? I'm like, I do have notes. I'm just familiar with them. That's why I don't read them. <laughs> dad, um, when I was first Bible Shout quizzing, out to dad. We're talking about dad. dad. Yeah. My um, first go around, I did it when I was eight, and then again when I was fourteen. First time I was eight, I wanted um, an airsoft gun, really bad, and those are cool. Yeah, it was one of those little pistols. Um, I remember I saw it at Walmart. We were walking through. It was like, like twenty bucks. I was like, Dad, I want that so bad. He's like, Well, you got to You got to learn some Bible quizzing verses before you can get the airsoft gun. So that was my motivation when I was eight. Oh yeah, my verses, so I could get that airsoft gun. I still have it to this day. It's in one of my drawers. Very, very cool. Yeah, I, I, there's a proper motivation, yeah. I guess to learn the Word of God. But yeah, that's uh, what Bible College does. So, uh, you written any cool papers lately? Yeah, um, I I probably wrote. I don't know if it was my best paper, but it was the most interesting to research. Um, it was for my um modern Pentecostal movements class. And um, I wrote about the development of the oneness of God doctrine um, and just mm. the history of it. And my argument was, because um, that's in academic papers, they want you to have an argument. You can't just present facts and like, it's not a research paper. 
like it's it's an argumentative paper like you have to have your thesis statement you know what you want to prove and then you have to have your proofs um and so my uh, argument was in the early pentecostal movement there was this thing called the restorationist impulse and right. they would want to their impulse was to go back to um the book of acts church they wanted to restore the church that just led them in you know that was their leading obviously the holy spirit was their guide but that was kind of um what ended up happening and so my argument was that the oneness the development of the oneness of god well the rediscovery of the oneness of god really was the ultimate consequence of the um uh, restorationist impulse mm. like that it necessarily would have led it to wasn't that. was it tongues first or the oneness of god uh tongues was first um that was the that was the um i kind of talked about that sorry a i'm bit. arguing with you here no yeah <laughs> yeah well so tongues was first like charles parham they you know um right. saw in scripture the doctrine that tongues is the evidence of the holy spirit and so as you know this was going and they were going back to the book what did the book of act they they skipped past you know hundreds of centuries or centuries of church history they went they wanted to go to acts to you know learn about the bible and theology and all this and it necessarily would have come to rediscovering the doctrine of god mm-hmm. because that i mean the apostles they didn't believe in the trinity it didn't come around for a couple hundred years after that and so that it would have happened and so that was my argument that this was the ultimate consequence of it because there, you know, there are other Pentecostals that, you know, are not, uh, they don't believe in the oneness of God doctrine. They're mm-hmm. still believe in the Trinitarian doctrine. That's been so prevalent throughout Christianity for a couple thousand years, almost, you know? Um, so I was saying that the, the oneness Pentecostal group was, you know, in a sense, the true restorationists, because we went, we, we went, we didn't stop at anything. Mm. You know, we just kept going back, you know, tongues, baptism in Jesus name, you know, oneness of God. And it was interesting. I, the baptism in Jesus name came first and then that kind of led them to oneness of God doctrine. Well, yeah, you, you look at what Jesus said, go baptize, go, go into all the world, teach all nations in my own rendition here yeah baptize them in the name of the father son and spirit did the apostles do that they did those certainly did they understood that to be the name of jesus Mm -hmm. and i think right there i remember i remember reading i think it was for the frank ewart yeah his stuff he uh really brought that out Mm. in teaching that you could see the godhead through the baptism formula yeah for that that was the that was the catalyst they they started you know asking why did the apostles baptize in the name of jesus you know if if there was this idea of the trinity why wouldn't they have just why did they apply jesus's words as in baptizing in his name and then that started led them down this path of rediscovering and it's you know it's all throughout the new testament even in the Old Testament, you know, I mean, they even restored, you know, they went all the way back. The Shema, here is our Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You know, that's even farther back, mm-hmm. you know. To this day, have we found anything on the Trinitarian doctrine in Judaism? No, no. It, scholars, like, they'll even say, you know, it's, 
it's futile to try and uh, find the Trinity in the Old Testament. It's just, it's not there. I mean, like we were talking about, we can allegorize something. You know, we can say that the angel of the Lord, oh, well, that was really, you know, the eternal son. You know, I've, I've, um, some would say that. I don't know if that's agreed upon widely, but, you know, that's, that's that allegorizing. That's not, that's not authorial intent. That's not, that would be misrepresenting scripture. So yeah, it's, it's just not there in the Old mm. Testament. It is not there. The angel of the Lord. Do you have any thoughts on what that is? I heard. Do you, do you want me to tell mine first? I'll say mine. All right, you this go one. Ahead. This one's probably wild. I don't. I don't agree with this one. Um, I. They taught us that it's it's a theophany, which is a, a manifestation of God. You know, not not in um, human form like Jesus, but just a theophany. But somebody, um, I can't remember who, but some guy, somebody in Bible college was talking about how they thought that. Um, after Jesus was resurrected, he stepped out of time and was the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament um, somehow, you know, because God's outside of time. My eyebrows are going up. Yeah, I was like, man, you know, I don't, I was like, I don't, uh, no, I'm not, I don't, you know, I, I think it's what they would just call a theophany of God, just a representation of God. Um, I don't know. If I love the word theophany. Yeah, it makes you sound smart. Makes well, you feel smart. Let me run this by you. I've only heard one other guy preach this, talk about that. He hasn't even preached it, but I've just chatted with him about it. It's Brother Jason Cisco. I ran this by him, and he says, "Yeah, you're right. That's what I believe. The angel of the Lord is just simply the angel of Messiah. It's not Messiah. It's the angel of Messiah." And I caught this in Revelation 1 when um, John said, I turned and looked and saw one like the Son of Man, someone looking like the Son of Man. And he calls, him, calls himself uh, the angel of the Lord. And all throughout Revelation, that's what he's referred to. <coughs> Who's talking with him? The angel of the Lord. Mm. Yeah, let me look, look it up here on, on, on the phone here. It's uh, Revelation 1. Yeah, he calls him one like the Son of Man. Mm. I, I, know, I, know, I know what you're referencing. I've, I remember reading that. Yeah, this is all in script. I, I haven't even, I don't even think I've asked you one question <laughs> that, I, that I send you. But yeah. And he calls him the angel of the Lord. See, these are the kind of conversations you have in the dorms at Bible College late at night. You know, I, I, lo- I loved this kind of stuff. Well, I'm glad that you guys are talking about that in the dorms. I was yeah. making prank phone calls. and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, okay, Revelation 1. I'm looking all over the chapter. It's in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must, must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel mm. to his servant, John. Mm. His angel, Jesus, angel. angel His servant is John. So my idea about this, what I ran by Brother Cisco is, you know, all of us have our own angel. That's an ancient uh, rabbinical doctrine that we all have an angel that looks like us. Like uh, when Peter was in prison, they were praying for him. He comes knocking on the door and Rhoda comes in. They said, oh, it's his angel. You You have a guardian angel that 
mimics you, looks like you, represents you in the spirit world. Mm-hmm. Jesus, because he's the son of man, he's a man. Every human being has their own angel. Why doesn't Messiah have his own angel? He was fully God, fully man. <clears throat> yeah. Mm. So the angel of the Lord is like a representation of Messiah. It's not Messiah. It's not the son of God. You know, how can, how can you have an eternal son? That's biologically impossible. Yeah. But there has always been a special angel created that represented Messiah that would come down, yeah. you know, and uh, be seen. Like, uh, I think Gideon, the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. Yeah, that'd be one of those papers where that'd be an argumentative paper. You'd, you'd state mm. your claim. That's what I always love is disagreeing with people. I, I'll find scholars that I disagree with, and you can just you can say whatever you want because it's your paper. You know, you, you have your evidence to back it up. Mm-hmm. That's fun, you know. You just make, <clears throat> make your claim and you argue for it. That's what, they, that's what they train you how to do. Have you ever heard that? I've argue, never heard that. That argument never heard he, has, that. he has an angel. I've never read about it. I'm sure people have written about it. I probably should dig into that yeah. a little bit. Yeah. It explains it. I... I don't, I don't know what else to say, you know, but I believe in theophanies. Yeah. You know, uh, the Lord appeared to Moses in a bush. Well, is God a bush? Mm. No, he's not. But he manifested yeah. as an angel of fire, you know, in the bush. God would manifest as wind. Is God wind? No, he just manifested. Mm. That's what Jesus is. He's a manifestation of God. Mm-hmm. You know? Yep. But that manifestation was begotten of God. Mm-hmm. That manifestation was God becoming flesh. You know, God didn't yep. become a bush. He didn't become wind. He didn't become fire, but he became a man. Yeah. And that's where those, that's where those oneness framers, they, that's what they, they wanted to use the Bible language of manifested in the flesh. Mm-hmm. Not so much persons, different persons of Godhead, but manifest. Academia. Academia. That's another thing. Those early Pentecostals, a lot of it was, um, a lot of it was theological claims. Yeah, That's they were very it, academic. It was, but they they were a reaction against the realm of you know, well, sermons are just really just theological papers. They were a reaction against that, and they were very leading by the Spirit. But what? You know, to get to go back to mm. it, just it's all about it's so much more powerful, like you were saying, when you have that understanding of the word of God and the truth, and then you can convey that, you know, in the spirit, you know, we will worship him in spirit and in truth. And I think that's the most powerful thing of it all is when mm-hmm. those, those two things work together. Awesome. I want to circle around on something you just said. So, a lot of the early oneness Pentecostals, they got away from sermonizing because that was too reform or Catholic or whatever. Yeah. They, so, yeah, and a lot of them didn't use notes, like Paul. <laughs> and yeah. then there's some guys among us who still preach against notes. <laughs> they do. But um, well, let me ask you this. You know, I have never seen Dr. Norse ever use a note, ever. I think I heard him say, he can't. <laughs> I remember him saying that. And this was like 2002, 2003. Mm. 
he gets up to preach in chapel. He just taught like three different classes and he gets up there and he's looking through his briefcase and he goes, I think I have some notes somewhere here, somewhere here. I guess I don't. Good. I don't like them. <laughs> it's something like that. He said, I just preach what comes into my head. Mm. And I remember thinking, I don't know if I could ever do that. Yeah. I mean, do you see him up there talking with notes? No, definitely not in the classroom setting. But he knows what he's talking about. Oh, yes. And it's never like a repeat. It's something new and fresh every time. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I think that's the way a lot of the old, old, when I say old timers, guys who were preaching in like 1905, 1906, yeah. 1907. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of it, if you go back and read about Azusa Street, it wasn't like a, they didn't have like a structured, like kind of service. It was just whoever, whoever had a word from God would just go up there and just start preaching it. Yeah. Like, it, it totally separated uh, clergy from laity, you know, anybody, you know, and I'm not advocating for that, but just how the spirit was moving. They, whoever had a word from God in their heart, if they were, you know, they feel like they needed to preach this word, they would just go up there and preach it. They did something that I, I call, it's not a term I made up, but the stream of consciousness. It's really talking unscripted. And I use it 90% of the time for this podcast. I don't really, I kind of know how I want to start, maybe a little bit how I want to end, but like playing jazz or whatever, just jamming. <laughs> you don't know how the middle is going to go, but mm-hmm. you'd just be surprised at when you just let it go. Yeah. With your mouth or what you're, whatever you're, you're on the drums, whatever the, the hands and the sticks want to do. Or, playing the guitar, whatever the pick and the strings want to do. Yeah. It just sort of comes out. And I think God moves in that way sporadically. Because I just think that's how God talks. Mm-hmm. It's more like through impulse as the Spirit yeah. really. I mean, in the New Testament, too, a lot of the sermons, they were spur-of-the-moment kind of deals. Like, uh, Peter's sermon, he saw what was going on. He's like, all right, this is, you know, this is that. Stephen, you know, his sermon wasn't scripted. He just preached, you know, for the moment. And that's a lot of it was because they were out and they weren't necessarily, I mean, sometimes they were in the synagogue, but a lot of times they were just out and about. Mm-hmm. And the Spirit of God just moved in an unction and they just started preaching, you know, what they knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Lord will quicken your mind to things. That's why it's so important to just read your Bible. Yeah. You know, I, you know, when I first started getting in the Bible, I had a lot of study Bibles, and I still got them. And sometimes I reference them, but I junked the study Bible because I wasn't reading my Bible. I was reading the commentary. Reading the commentary, yeah. But it's the whole, I can't understand it, you know. So you got to have some, I don't know, those, and all the little Bible maps and the squares on that, it's just weird, you know. I, I yeah. prefer just a text Bible. And then my last Bible I got, it's a wide margin. I thought, I'm going to have a wide margin. And I don't like it. Mm. Because I've been using it, I think I'm on my fourth year now. What's your philosophy about yeah. marking in the Bible? Well, I thought I want to write in my Bible. Because I love to journal, you know, and I thought I'm going to write my ideas. But I'm going back and rereading it. I think this is the seventh time I'm reading it through since I've bought it. and. I I've, I've, don't read the Bible. I read my notes. <laughs> I'm not reading the Bible. So I'm like, Jay, your, your note 
different than uh, Schofield. You're no different than Thompson or Dakes or uh, Matthew Henry or all them other guys writing in your Bible. So, and I like all those guys, but you know, do you need commentaries when you read Tolkien? <laughs> do you need do you need do you need footnotes when you read C.S. Lewis or whoever you read? Right. No. No, you want to understand them, you just read it. Right. I don't know why we think the Bible is this far out mystical book that you have to have another man's opinion in it to understand it. Right. I mean, you just, it's like anything. You read it over and over again and you understand it. Mm-hmm. Pardon the carnal illustration. We were talking about entertainment stuff earlier. But that movie Inception, <laughs> I think I've watched it four or five times and I still don't. Yeah, I still don't understand it. But every time I watch it, I get something that I didn't understand before. Yeah. Out of it. That's the way the human mind is. Yeah. And there's the element, especially as Pentecostals, we emphasize, you know, the illumination of the spirit while you're reading it. Spirit can speak to you mm-hmm. while you're reading the Bible. It's a living, living book. And that, I mean, that's, that's a whole nother mm-hmm. aspect of it. I hear this a lot in uh, our Bible colleges, all of them, all the professors say it, but it's, it's designed to prepare you, prepare you for ministry, to grow you, challenge you, whether it's, uh, of course, preaching, teaching, pastoring, worship leading, uh, all uh, be, being a, a youth pastor, a children's pastor, a, a disciple maker, a Bible, uh, anything you're doing in life uh, to prepare you. And I think writing papers, reading, all of that growing you, but you know, you need to go into a situation with something. You know, in preparing yourself, and I think one of the best ways to do that is simply write down your ideas. That's kind of where creativity. I remember, yeah, I remember one time you told me, and I, I do this all the time, uh, when you have a sermon idea, you just write everything that comes to your mind down on the paper. Mm-hmm. That is so helpful because it just, you have so many things working around in your head. You just get out and start, you know, working your ideas out. It'll, it's just, it's, it's amazing how much it helps you form your understanding about something. Yeah. It's just old school brainstorming. Yeah. I, I don't, I, when I first started preaching, which was in, uh, 2000, 2001, not everybody had a printer and you know, back then who's going to get in printer paper, (laughs) you know, now it's so easily accessible, but it was, it was hard to find you know, printer paper, and it was expensive, very expensive. And then e-cartridges were, costed more than the printer. <laughs> and nowadays it's different. But, and, and then I didn't type much, but I was always used to handwriting. You know, I wrote papers in high school by hand. Wow. And we all did. Yeah, we all did. I think my handwriting was better then than it is now. But yeah, I would get out a blank piece of paper set it down on the desk, and usually I would, and this is to prepare to preach, usually I would have an idea, the big idea of what I wanted to preach about. And I would write that big idea right in the middle of the paper and just stare at it and think, but in the spirit of prayer. And I would write down whatever came to my mind on that paper. And it was amazing how these little ideas would just link all over the place with what I wanted to write about. Sometimes it would be a concept. Sometimes it would be uh, some insight into the Bible verse that I was working with. Sometimes I re- would think of a story. I'd remember an illustration. 
uh, sometimes the spirit would literally drop a thought into my head from nowhere. And I put that down and in just 40 minutes, 40 minutes, I'd have a entire sheet full of now the really where you become a master at it is when you can arrange your ideas. I think that's really what separates a lot of good preaching from bad preaching is the arrangement of your ideas. Think about this. How many times have you heard a guy preach? And I mean, it, it's not a plane. It's a helicopter. He's just up in the air. just After five minutes into it, it's like he's wore out, ready for everybody to come you know, bum rush in the front. <laughs> but most of us are accustomed to hearing somebody for 40 minutes. <laughs> and then we come up. And why, why couldn't he have saved that for the end? Yeah. Arranging your ideas. I mean, you, know, you think about Paul's writing. What if he would have taken the things that are at the very end of each book and stuck them at the beginning? Yeah. Yeah, it builds to something. Yeah. And a lot of those old school preachers, they built their messages. And they would usually save the best stuff for last. Mm. Kind of like Act 1, Act 2. Act three, mm-hmm. sort of working towards something. Yeah. What was that paper you told me you wrote about Christus Victorious? Or oh, yeah. <laughs> what, which one is that? Yeah, that was another one I wrote this semester. Um, it was, um, I mean, we were talking about uh, propitiation at the beginning. It was a paper about um, different uh, ideas about uh, the atonement. Um, mm. Spiritual warfare is a biblical topic that just fascinates me. Um, just me too. <laughs> yeah. Like just the different scenes in the new Testament of, um, especially with Jesus, um, him combating, you know, the powers of the forces of evil. Um, and so my, my paper was about, there's a, um, there's an atonement theory called Christus Victor. There's different, there's different, um, conversations about, what exactly Jesus' death on the cross accomplished. You know, you have the idea that he died in our place, and you have the idea that he defeated the powers of evil. There's kind of, and you have the idea that, um, you know, just as he lived a sacrificial life, you know, pick up your cross and follow me, we should um, as well live like that as a, you know, a metaphor for life. And over the centuries of Christianity, different people have interpreted it different ways. Like the very beginning, well, a couple hundred years in, like 300, 400, they interpreted Jesus's death. You know how it says in Matthew 20, 28, maybe, um, Jesus said the son of man came not to uh, be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The early church fathers, they thought that, um, okay, when you say fathers, that's not the apostle. No, no, no. Like, Who's that? Uh, that's like uh, Origen. Um, that's the one I read for sure. Um, okay, it's guys that were mentored by the apostles? No, or like no, no. The it's, grand, spiritual yeah. grandsons. This is a couple generations. This is like 300, 400 AD. Um, they interpreted that verse to mean that... Um, Disciples of the heretic Justin Martyr. Yeah, yeah. They, they interpreted it to mean that, you know, of course, they're coming from a Trinitarian theology that God gave Jesus as a ransom payment to the devil. 
Um, so they believe that uh, God kind of tricked the devil by giving Jesus his bait as the ransom payment. <laughs> you know, that's what they believed. That's what they thought that they meant by the ransom. They thought the ransom was paid to the devil. And so a ransom. Yeah. Well, because I mean, a ransom, it's paid to somebody, you know, somebody has, has somebody captive mm -hmm. and they're demanding a payment. And so they believe that. So God deceived the devil through that Jesus. Yes. That's what they thought it meant. Like literally. And then, so that was kind of like the idea for until, um, 1095, somewhere around there. Um, like the year 1095, this dude named Anselm and in that culture, um, they had, it was kind of like the chivalry culture. Like your honor was the most important thing. Mm. And his idea of the atonement was that God's honor had been offended because of human sin and to satisfy the punishment for sin, Jesus died in humanity's place. It's called the satisfaction theory. Um, so that was kind of the big idea for a while. Eventually it came around the substitution theory, which is that, um, Jesus died in our place, um, to satisfy the wrath of God, you know, for sin, judgment on sin. And then in 1930, this, uh, I think he was Swedish. He wrote a book called Christus Victor. And he argued that those ideas, they, they, not, not the, not the ransom paid to the devil. That's so he reinterpreted this idea that the cross was a battle of the forces of good against the forces of evil. He said, this is the main idea of the atonement. Um, and it's, but it's not, it's not a, a, like a specific theory that you have to outline. Because a lot of these different ones, you have to articulate it in a certain different kind of way. He's like, it's a theme. It's a, it's a motif. All throughout the a Bible. A motif. Yeah. And I mean, I wrote, I argued my paper. It first appears in Genesis 315. Um, when he says, I'll put enmity between your seed and her seed, and uh, you will crush his head, but he will bruise your heel. Right. It's called the Proto-Evangelion, which is, you know, the first gospel. And, um, you know, if that's the first hint of the gospel message that the head of Satan is going to be crushed, you know, that should be the main idea of the gospel. And so I, I argue like that, I argue that under, under the umbrella of this theme that Jesus defeated the forces of evil, you have all the different things where, yes, he died for our sins. Yes, absolutely. But it's all under this umbrella of the spiritual battle that took place. And I went on to argue that this encompasses the whole entire gospel. And this kind of talks about what we were talking about at the beginning. The gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection. If the essence of the gospel is just substitution, then, you know, where does his burial come into play? Where does his resurrection come into play? Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, you know? And in the resurrection, uh, different people uh, argue whether Jesus, you know, descended into the grave. You know, I believe he did personally. Um, some of my professors believe he did. He descended into the grave, confronted the powers of evil in hell, and he took the keys of the kingdom. And in Revelation 1.18, Jesus says, Behold, I am the first and the last, and behold, I hold the keys uh, to death in Hades. So I, art, I um, kind of talked about how like, some, there was a climactic battle that happened, and Jesus took the power of death and hell from the enemy and rose again from the grave. When he came out of the tomb, he defeated the power of death because humanity was in bondage to sin from the devil. And so he defeated that, saying, Death no longer has hold of you. And so, yeah, he died in our place so that we could be free. 
from the bond, the bonds of the devil. Um, so yeah, it was just, it's just kind of, and I, I talked about how like, um, the garden of Gethsemane was like, um, Jesus preparation for the battle that was about to take place. He knew it was going to happen, but he didn't want to do it because he knew, you know, the agonizing pain and then the battle that was going to have to happen. So it was kind of preparation for all that. And it's just, it's all over. That's why it's a motif. It's a theme. It's not a, uh, definitely articulated, uh, theory, but it's just, it's, it's the idea of the Bible. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, and that my argument was that it encompasses the death, burial and the resurrection, all of, all of it together. That's the meaning of the cross. Yeah. And, you know, this is Christmas time. And my mind, everything you're saying is thinking about what Gabriel told, uh, or um, who was it? Simeon. It wasn't the angel. It was Simeon that told Mary a sword would pierce through your soul, through your heart. Hmm. Right? I, I'm not sure. <laughs> I've never had to look up so many things. <laughs> I need to memorize more scripture like Paul. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't have it. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's Simeon. That's it. Or the most powerful resource we got for the Bible, other than the Bible itself, is a concordance. Yeah, and these little concordances are amazing. Yeah, it's Simeon, and he takes up the Lord in his arms, and he said, "Your servant can now depart in peace. I have seen the salvation." He says to Mary, "Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed." Mm. I I think it would be because she would have to see the death of a child, which is so unnatural for a human mm-hmm. to see. And that sword did pierce through her heart. So the, you know, it's Christmas time, but we're talking about things that are so centered around Jesus, the motif of Jesus himself. Yeah. He was God manifested in the flesh. If God was three, then Mary would have had triplets. She would have. <laughs> but she had one because the Lord is one. And then you look at um, why he suffered and died. It was not a trick. No. <laughs> it's just, it's but, so crazy to think about. But it. I kind of see that there. You know, look at how God talked well, to it is. Satan with Job. Yeah. You know, have you considered him? And he's talking to Satan like he's a schmuck. You know, and I, and I think, of course, he is a schmuck. And that's how, but God can talk to him like a schmuck. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, Paul, Paul said, First uh, Corinthians 2, I think, if uh, they would have known they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Right. If they would have known what was going to happen, they wouldn't have done it. So, so Satan could not see the kingdom that would come through the death of the Lord. Yeah. And, there, and then there's the argument or the conversation of, you know, what role did Judas play? You know, how, how, was, how was Judas used to accomplish salvation for the world? You know, it's almost seemed like Everything that he did, that he, you know, meant for evil, somehow God was able to turn that around and end up the salvation of the entire world. You know, how God in his ultimate wisdom, that's why Paul said the wisdom of the cross, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. You know, I always talk about, I always uh, say like, you see a lot of people, you know, wear like the cross necklace or whatever. Um, It would be the equivalent of in our culture wearing an electric chair on a necklace you know it was an instrument of shame and mm. of forward execution but somehow some way god ordained that this method you know this would bring about the salvation of the entire world and he he even used those i mean 
the devil, the powers of evil, they were trying to kill and they thought they had killed the Messiah. You know, it's Satan entered Judas. They were trying to kill the Messiah, but God turned it around on them. And uh, if they would have known, they would have not, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They would have known what was going to happen. That as they are celebrating his death, you know, they hear a pound on the door in hell and Jesus kicks down the door and goes and takes the keys, you know, and frees all the captives and preaches to the spirits in prison, you know? Yes. Well, his death defeated, as you wrote in the paper, it was a defeat over the powers that held the world in captivity to sin. Mm-hmm. And when you see the cross, you want to go sin? No. You know, when you, when you see, when you think about Jesus on the, on the cross, do you want to go live foolishly through prodigal living? I mean, when you hear the message of the cross, it makes you want to change. It makes you want to repent. You know, that's what. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot. I love, and they talk about this. Man, you feel the Holy Ghost? Yeah. Whoa, I'm, I just nice. did. I just, it, oh, God man. just. Uh, Especially when you start thinking about Christmas, like this is what he came for. You know, he came to die. For, oh. He came to die. Goodness. Yeah, and when you think about a, a beautiful baby lying in a manger, do you want to sin? No, you don't. Mm-hmm. But everything, Jesus doing everything, you don't want to sin. And that's why you keep Christ in your mind mm-hmm. and, and, and reading your Bible because you'll take on the character of Messiah. Yeah. yeah, when you look at the cross, you don't want to sin. You want to change. It makes you want to be better because the cross is a picture of hell. Mm-hmm. You know, the hell will probably feel like crucifixion. Every day, but another thing I think about a lot, and you brought it up, is the Garden of Eden. What do you? Where is the serpent in a tree? And I think it was it was like the serpent was trying to be like Messiah. I don't know if he knew what would one day happen, but I think he, you know, because he's around, he was around the throne of God, prophecies, whatever. I don't know, but he's always tried to have what Jesus is. He, he has no imagination at all. He can't create anything on his own. He wants to do everything that Jesus does and everything Jesus is going to have. Yeah. You know, he, that's what the Antichrist is going to be. The, he parodies everything. Parodies. Good, the parody. good word. Yep. We've got good words. Uh, perpetuation, <laughs> motif, parody. Yeah, it's a parody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's trying to be Messiah and deceive. It's a fake. Yeah. So, yeah, the greatest tree that you could ever eat from is the cross. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. He died on a tree. Yeah, he, he died on a tree. Yep. Amen. That's why we celebrate Christmas, Easter. I mean, it's always Christmas around here, right? You know? Always. And we always celebrate the existence and the birth of our Lord and coming into this world. So, well, man, I... Did you get a good grade on those papers? Or did, <laughs> I haven't, I haven't, <laughs> did they tear it up? I have, with yeah, the red ink? <laughs> yeah, I talk about this paper and I come back. I have to rewrite it. No, I haven't. I, it hasn't came back yet. I'm still waiting on it. Uh, finishing up grading. Um, yeah, it was just, and it, it all just made sense as I was researching this out. Um, and a lot of people like, you know, mostly in the, I call them the Bible nerds, like not in, Absolute circles, but in the broader Christianity, they would disagree with my claims that Christus Victor, the, the battle was is the is the big idea of the cross. They would disagree with it. 
they would say that it's it was substitution that he died in our place um to satisfy the wrath of god you know and like i said i mean there's a piece of that that's scriptural there's a piece of it but what if the, his death you know was the way that he overcame the powers of evil you know he died you know for us yes in a sense that he um uh, i i read somebody he said um you have the scripture for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son a lot of people make that seem like it says for god so hated the world that he killed his only begotten son you know that's how they present god right <laughs> yeah that he hated humanity and sin and that's i don't i don't agree with that picture you know we of course we believe in grace and ju- mercy and judgment we believe you know god is a god of judgment you know there will come a judgment day with the fear of the lord we believe that you know we also believe in the mercy of god you know so there's just, there's just it's the different aspects of them so i you know it just biblically and just the idea that you know jesus suffered so much so he could defeat the powers i just think about all the people that are in bondage to sin you know and have been redeemed you know jesus suffered and died so that they could be free you know from all that all that horrible just sin is just it's miserable like i mean yeah it feels like crucifixion that's you know that's why he became sin for us you know so yeah man you're really challenging my thinking because I've preached it before, I've heard it preached at Pentecost, that you and I should have been on the cross, and rightfully so. And like I said, I think there's a piece of that. He was the sacrificial lamb. There, there is, like I said, there's a scriptural piece of that. I think that you cannot, you cannot get away from the fact that Jesus died for you. You cannot get away from that. Yeah. There's a piece of that in, in the atonement. I've but the motif. The motif of of the vic- the victory motif and in revelation it's just one huge battle you know of god's kingdom against the kingdom of evil yeah the accuser of the brethren he's going to have his vengeance you know okay yeah so every sacrifice in the old testament i don't think they stood around and looked at those little lambs thinking it should be us that are getting our throats slit and getting our blood poured on this altar and dragging our blood into no, I think they looked at it as this is how God fights war, mm. you know, but not against the Amalekites or the Ammonites or the Philistines. This is how we fight war within ourselves yeah. to cover our sins. Because mm. they were still in sin. Yeah. And the same thing. This is how God fights for our sins, against our sins. It is through death. It is through death, yeah. And how are things destroyed? They're killed. Yeah. And Sin was destroyed. The ultimate, the ultimate argument of it is that it includes also the burial and the resurrection. You only have the sacrifice part of it. Your gospel is Jesus died. Here we go. Your gospel is Jesus died. But there's no, there's no resurrection. You know, you have to have all of it. All of it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I preach you the gospel, which you've heard that Christ died and was buried and resurrected on the third day. That is the gospel. Nice rendition. Yeah. It's, that's it. Yeah. yeah. It's not just that Jesus died. That's, that's a piece of it, like I'm saying. You know, it could have been that it, we deserved our place on the cross. I mean, because God, he does judge sin. It is against his 
his will, sin, that is grievous. But, you know, but he died, was buried, and he defeated the forces of evil at us in bondage. And it just, it's the all-encompassing motif. It's death, burial, and resurrection. And especially as apostolics, repentance, baptism, and feeling the Holy Ghost, which is part of the salvation process, and it empowers us to live a life overcoming sin. That's what the Spirit does. It, it's a part of the sanctification about salvation, and then it empowers us to conquer that evil, you know, because we still live in the fallen world, but we have that power now to overcome that sin that keeps crawling back at us that we want to fight. Amen. Okay, let me ask you this. Was Jesus innocent when he got on that cross? Yeah. I think he, do you think he kept his innocence? Yeah, he's without sin. He became sin, but he was innocent. Mm-hmm. Was he innocent when he descended into the lower parts of the earth? Yeah. Okay. Now, Satan was the accuser that accused Jesus. Uh, Satan possessed Judas. Uh, Satan got into the inner workings, you know, of the Pharisees. He'd been in them for a long time. You know, you look at the law. Could the law, you could not put to death an innocent man. You know, they put to death the innocent Lord. And then hell tried to take the soul of a just man. They had no lawful power to do that. That, in a way, is how it was ultimately destroyed. Because I think Satan had justification on every soul. Because everybody sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And when you do that, you enter, you step away from being born upright, as Solomon taught. And you are now fallen. And Satan has, you know, a, he has justified a little bit in what he says about us because we have sinned. The only person to ever never sin and to go to hell without any sin was Jesus. <laughs> right. So Satan, therefore, broke the law. Yeah. He got judgment for it, too. He got judgment for it. Mm. That's why they fear the cross. That's Mm. why they are defeated. Because Satan did something really bad. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. That's just a thought. Yeah. It's, again, another argument you can make. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. And... I was reading another guy, he, he taught about it. You know, if you have, if you have the, um, just the simple, you know, just the substitution, just the death part of it, it doesn't, um, it doesn't call to a radical, to you what to do with it now. You know, a lot of it is um, individualized. Oh, he died for my sin. You know, he died for me, you know, just so I could be saved. And that's true. But, you know, what are we going to do with it now? You know, if he, if he, if Jesus defeated the powers of evil, you know, he has commissioned us to go and do the same, you know, by proclaiming the gospel, you're, you're taking territory, thy kingdom come, you know, you're, you're taking territory for Jesus. You play, you're now in, in the kingdom. You're now playing the part of conquering the, the kingdom of Satan. You're now, you know, a warrior arm, you know. That's, that's another aspect of it. It doesn't just stop there. You've been saved, yeah. 
we're going to heaven, yeah, once you obey the gospel, yeah. But are we just going to, you know, just sit on that? No. Once you realize that it's all a part of defeating powers of evil, we're now going to go proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and take souls for the kingdom of God. You know, it calls to radical action. Mm. Just in talking to you, it's more like easy to articulate even what you wrote in that paper. Yeah. That, imagine you're in a coffee shop talking to some hipster, hipsters and you're like, Jesus died for me, man. I mean, <laughs> they may relate to that, but. Like share, man. Share, man. Share. Yeah, so long it's your stuff that's being shared. But I think it just kind of, it's easier to articulate. There's something that agrees in my spirit when I say the reason Jesus got up on that cross was not to just say, hey, let me do this instead of you. That's there. It's there. But really the ultimate reason, what God's main reason, it was a war. Genesis 3.15. It was to bruise, to crush, to put a hurt on the original problem, and that was sin. It was to get sin's attention in the earth. But there is a way to get back to righteousness. Yep. Yep. That's why he came. That's why he came. You know. Man, that's good stuff. Awesome. And you have, you know, with his birth, you have that whole warfare going on with uh, Jesus. They had to vacate the city because all the babies were being killed. Oh my God. It's just, it's everywhere. It's the motif. It's the battle. It's the battle. And scholars call it the, um, the already and the not yet. Because in a way, the devil has been defeated, but he will ultimately be defeated at the end of all things. The so, already and the not yet. That's what it's called, yeah. It, we the live, already, not yet. We, suspend, we are suspended in a tension between, in one sense, the kingdom of God is here, but in another sense, it's not here yet. We're hung in the balance. Oh, man, I like this. Yeah. For the last 2,000 years, Christianity's just been kind of hanging in that balance between we're in the kingdom of God, but we're not all the way there yet. It's already in the not yet. Yeah. That's probably why we don't feel at home in this world. It's exactly why. We're bound to something greater. Yeah, because we've been redeemed. You know, we belong to heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Um, yeah. I, this is just a cool metaphor I read. Um, Living in, uh, you know, not, not living for God is like, is like you're in a play and you have a script and you just tear up the script and you just read your own lines and you do, you know, what you want in the drama. But, and it ends up not being good, you know, but living for God is you're in the drama and God gives you a whole new script. He's like, no, here, here's the part you're going to play now. And you, you read, you're like, he's like, here, read these lines. You know, and that's what we're doing. We're just that's exactly what we're doing. We don't know what we're doing. <laughs> it's not from us. We're just following the guidelines he gave us. And we're playing out this drama, you know, that it's, it's going to be intense. You know, we're, we're, we're just, we're kind of progressing. We're getting close to the end nowadays, you know. Last days are here. Let's look up, you know, the entire world. We're getting close to that end. We're just playing in this play. And it's about to get real. Like the end is about to come, like soon. And then the force of evil will be defeated, you know, totally. It sure will. Yeah. 
Awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, Caleb Gleason. Somebody said-